Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So, let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm Brittany Walton. I'm the Strategic Operations Lead here at SOFIC. And on today's episode, we are going to dive a little deeper into human-centered design. What is human-centered design? How do we achieve it? And what are the benefits and the outcomes of human-centered design? Joining me today, we have Cynthia Rando, our founder and CEO, as well as Jennifer Fogarty, our Director of Applied Health and Performance. Hey there. Hi, Brittany. Excited to be here. It's a great topic. So just diving right in, you know, what is what is human-centered design? Um, so human-centered design is really a design methodology that focuses on incorporating the end user, so the human, um, throughout the design process. Um, and this results in products and services that are safer and more usable because the design is based on human capabilities, um, limitations, and behavior um, from the very um, conceptual phase of the design throughout um, the design lifecycle. So I want to touch on human-centered design um, a little bit in terms of business. Um, when we think about the traditional business model, you know, we think about um, business strategy and engineering as being separate domains. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about how human-centered design can help companies converge on these, um, you know, typically separate domains in order to integrate um, and prioritize and things like that. So Cynthia, do you want to give us some some explanation on how how companies can use human centered design as a as a business strategy to help converge um, across the domains that are a lot of times separate, um, and that results in you know conflicting priorities. Sure. So human centered design is is one of those broad bucket terms that means a lot of different things to to different people. But when you when you think about it in the design context, it's sometimes not obvious, as Brittany pointed out, that there's a connection to supporting a really well run business. And, and the reason is, is that human centered design employs a lot of different strategies that that not only support um, making effective and successful products for people, but also making sure that you've got safe and effective processes and procedures within the company to not only create these products, but also for the workforce to follow. So it's it's not only an, an external facing set of skills that you can use, it's also internal facing. And human-centered design is, is usually the jumping off point too that, that helps you know, bridge that gap between the disciplines and that they, it often runs the, the integrator role in terms of understanding the, the, the space between those creating products and those that you're creating products for, and also what are the needs of, of both those entities to succeed in the marketplace and also being, you know, like we said before, successful and safe, safe company. Yeah. I- And from my vantage point, you know, in the, in kind of the application of my work in my prior aerospace to kind of dedicated aerospace career, you know, what I saw was a lot of people to, to rush toward either projects that were driven by schedule, cost, 
and clearly had a, a technical component. But the fact that a human was either going to be an operator or a recipient <laughs> of the technology or a user of the data from the technology would get lost or somehow not prioritized. Like other things would drive the outcome. And when you when you misunderstood the ability to deliver a usable pr uh, product, a safe product for trying to meet the schedule and cost goals, you know, you ended up with a failure. Um, and then all of that time and money that you had spent was literally wasted. You know, it was a poor investment or, you know, maybe it, it created a, a pilot project, but nowhere near what your, your objectives were with the final product. So I think getting that concept of humans are involved. I, I mean, we're creating these things for a particular reason, so, some aspect of application and really understanding the role humans will play in its operation, um, delivery of the product or a recipient of some output from the product is inherently important to make sure you're always targeting towards success, but triangulating between um, what what the human needs, what the costs are going to be, and, and what the schedule is all have to be you know, um, compared at some point because you need to get to the end. You know, if you're only trying to satisfy what the human needs and get there with the concept of perfection, you may never be able to afford it, or it may t it might take so long that it's not worth doing. It's not going to meet the need of whatever the mission objective was, depending on what your mission was. So, I think understanding it and comparing transparently, having data to compare amongst all these challenges allows people to make a very informed decision. And at least acknowledge that you know they realized what role the human would play uh, in the objective, whatever the program or project was. Yeah, and I think the the proof is also out there, right? So when you look at the most successful companies, whether you're looking at the stock index or just companies you you know and love, those who are most successful actually employ the human centered design philosophy or methodologies and or both. Um, to a you know to to great extent to to serve the marketplace and these are the the products that you can't live without and so you know if if you if you think really hard I'm sure you can come up with a few whether it's some of those Apple products that really speak to every aspect of your life and they've done a really good job of understanding you the user and your needs in the world in which you want to live and how you want those products to support you that's a very successful end execution and the company has also done a good job of setting itself up for, for continued success because they've honed in on um, multiple different levels of human-centered design and, and why it's important. Yeah, that's a great point. And we can, we can help folks out by posting the reference to the work that was done because I think that was incredibly impactful to have data to show retrospectively for companies that did take a human-centered design approach, their level of success. And they were, they were definitely you know, from a revenue standpoint, beating the competition, no doubt about it. So it proved itself uh, for sure. And now we're just trying to be very proactive with it and show people the value doing it prospectively. And um, value includes not only marketability, but also cost avoidance when it comes to redesign failure or, you know, unfortunately, even worse, which are accidents or, you know, casualties. So it's really an important application. Yeah, thank you guys for that. I think it, you know, it can't be overstated how much, you know, redesign um, and the cost and the labor hours and everything that goes into there really impacts companies' um, bottom line. So the, the goal of human-centered design is really to understand, um, you know, what, what functions and what 
um, products are really needed in the beginning so that we can work towards that, you know, right solution um, from the very get-go. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about um, what makes up human-centered design. Um, so here at Sofic, we, we have a, um, a business model in that we use um, two different areas in order to achieve um, human-centered design. Um, so the first being human factors engineering, um, a little more traditionally understood, I think, as far as applying human factors concepts um, throughout the design lifecycle. Um, and then we also leverage applied health and performance um, to really understand how the human might evolve over time and how the how the design needs to address those changes of the user based on um, the environment that they're in in order to achieve, again, that, that human-centered design. Um, so let's touch on a little bit about human factors engineering um, and, you know, what are the capabilities, what are the applications of human factors engineering and, and how does this help to achieve the human-centered design goal? So for those who may not be indoctrinated, human factors is, is not human resources. So I always like to start there because that's always the, the common mis, misperception. Um, human factors engineering is, is just like it sounds. It is a, a niche specialty type of engineering that, that focuses on integrating the human into design. And that can mean lots of different things from physical body form, but also you know the cognitive nature of how we understand and interact with technology in our world. And so it can get quite complex rather quickly, and it can range from very simple products to um, when you think of your your iPhone and you know simple digital interfaces that you may love or loathe on a daily basis. That that all plays into human centered design, and it and it goes to more. Um, complex type applications such as space vehicle design, space habitat design on another another planet, thinking thinking about a lot of different variables in terms of in, environments in terms sorry, in terms of environments where people will live and have to interact where there's there's different um, effects on the human body that that come into play that I think Jen will touch on a little bit more eloquently than than I could. But when we think about human factors engineering, it, it runs the gamut of support. It, it starts as early as understanding that there's a, there's a problem and understanding what that problem is from a, from a user perspective and how best to solve that problem in terms of the user and then understanding risks. And so that's, that's step one before you ever design something. And, you know, in this day and age, because software um, and manufacturing and evolution of ideas can happen so quickly from a prototyping perspective, we tend to jump right to the widget. Um, but you really got to understand your space if you want to have either a successful company or product and also, you know, making it, making it safe. And then to carry on from that, once you start, you know, developing prototypes, human factors is essential in understanding um, how to test and identify where you have risks and opportunities in the design to support the human, um, much more broadly in terms of the operations you expect that that human to to carry out with that technology and so again testing understanding the safety implement implications and also where you have a risk of error all key elements of human factors engineering and then you know when you get get to the end of the line verifying what you think you know and making sure that all of these assumptions and design changes hold and that you you have a solid product once you go to market implementation and nope doesn't stop there you still have responsibility to to your market to understand how that product is actually getting used and if are are there any use case errors that 
that are starting to crop up that maybe were not foreseeable during the design process? And also, where do you have opportunities with the public to make new new products or supportive products? Um, so there, there is a continuous life cycle and it's self-feeding in a sense if you have a good understanding of, of how to design and develop to meet user needs. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so we touched on, you know, some application in um, space flight and spacecraft and designing things, you know, to meet the human's needs in those very um, unique and challenging environments. Um, but another good application example is is for medical devices. You know, that's another area where um, being able to do the right thing at the right time is key. Um, and, you know, it has, you know, pretty terrible consequences, you know, if devices or systems don't work the way that um, we need them to. So that's been another area that's been really exciting and rewarding to see the benefits of human-centered design and how it can impact, um, you know, patient as well as the, um, the, the medical staff. Yeah, and that's, that's an excellent point. And, you know, more simply, anywhere you have a human where you're developing an end product has an application for human-centered design, human factors engineering, and, and most likely applied health considerations. You know, the medical arena is a good one because it's, it's, it's all of those things. And when you think about the complexity of these environments and just how much is going on and interdependent in terms of the people involved, the systems involved, and the workflows, processes, and procedures, depending on your terminology, you, know, you you have, you know, a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong. So we are very dependent on ensuring all of all of these systems work symbiotically together to support the end goal, making people better um, and not causing harm. Okay, so that, I think that's a really good explanation and, um, you know, gives us some examples for the human factors engineering component of human-centered design. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the applied health and performance side. You know, what are, the, what are the capabilities of applied health and performance that contributes to human-centered design that um, the human factors engineering doesn't necessarily address? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think we have an opportunity, you know, Sophic uh, is defining human-centered design for our, our business application and our approach. So we have this new division, which is, is still evolving and maturing, but they're probably uh, worth it taking a minute to talk about even its title. So, you know, the concept of applied health and performance, so the, the terminology it may get confused with, and I'm still helping finding ways to explain it better to folks, is allied health, you know, and those are people who provide some medical services that aren't directly doctors and nurses. But all of them are addressing human needs at some point. So, th so the concept of allied health is embedded in there. But applied health and performance is really about taking knowledge from any source, whether it be research, you know, terrestrial medical care, spaceflight, um, what we learn during spaceflight about humans, and that has a research and a medical component, and then applying it in a particular context or scenario, depending on what a customer needs. Um, so... The, the capabilities that underlie the division are things such as decomposing, you know, the problem. Like when I think about it, it's like, well, what, and I think Cynthia was alluding to this, like, what's your concept of operations? What do you expect this thing to do? What problem are you solving? And how it's going to, how, how do you really envision it operating so it can accomplish that goal? 
Well, and then you start to break that down into doable components to say, is there evidence there and knowledge or, you know, prior art? Is there something pre-existing that supports the ability of your approach, technology, whatever it happens to be actually to do that job? Or do you have to go build that evidence base? Do you, do you have to do research to generate information to support the fact that you can actually think it may operate in a certain in a certain context, environment, whatever it happens to be. And then, you know, if you do need research, we would develop a science portfolio. Like, how does that happen? How do you break down what you need into doable tasks? Um, this is a pretty common approach for anyone who, you know, was pursuing research and has to write a proposal. I mean, you have to deconstruct this very complex multifactorial problem and figure out are these problem are pieces of it solved and I rely on them. And then if there are gaps in knowledge and understanding, how do we go get the data to fill, fill that so we can make an educated decision about how to apply that information? Um, but there's also, you know, risk involved in that area, which is risk that we don't have the technology to do the research to fill the gap. And some things may remain unknown. And, th and that's not a fault. That's just a, a fact of being. And unless you can change that outcome, you're going to move forward knowing that you have gaps. And those are usually considered limitations. And that's factored into kind of the safety element or the effectiveness element. So the applied health side is really trying to understand when you're going to include a human um, do you know enough to apply this approach or technology? And if you think you do, what, what risks still might remain that need to be addressed so that you have greater certainty with respect to safety and efficacy? And we always talk, going back to the human-centered design approach, you, you don't have to have perfection. You have to understand where you know what you're doing and where you have gaps so you can make a decision about it. And we've all seen programs and projects, whether it be metal tech, medical technology, even in our current state of the pandemic or in spaceflight, where people have made the decision, the executive decision to move forward, knowing that there are things we don't know. But the benefits of acting should outweigh the risks. But as you accumulate data, you may change your mind. And changing your mind is also something that we should allow ourselves to do. There's a, you know, a a way to do it in terms of documentation, but that evolution of knowledge and application allows you to do process improvement, which I think Cynthia was also alluding to with HFE is you have responsibility after marketing something or, or putting something into operations to continue to surveil. Is it doing what we thought it would do? Is it resulting in the outcomes we expected it to, or does it need to be altered because there's things we couldn't have anticipated? And this is where we really get to kind of my background and specialty which is both health and performance in humans is on a continuum. It's not a single point. And so I think there are two examples maybe to walk through that might help illustrate, you know, the application of HCD, particularly with applied health and performance is if you're designing something for the general public or, you know, a broad population, say people who are sick with cardiovascular disease, like in the medical context, you cannot rely on a single uh, capability of a human or a single type of behavior. You're going to have a, a very large spectrum of humans to plan for, which can seem really overwhelming if you're trying, trying to design something. But interestingly enough, you know, we have very successful examples and, you know, a lot of medical technology is leveraging off of cell phone technology. Why? Because cell phones have been picked up by every culture, <laughs> people across a broad spectrum. And it's, it's because people don't have to conform to a performance expectation of the phone. 
the phone is actually designed to the lowest common denominator possible. And it relies on things that are not driven by understanding a language because they're very uh, pictographic or icon driven. And if you go all the way back, like with humans, like hieroglyphics have been around and you can still interpret them because it's a picture, right? I, I, you, I may not understand a word you would use, but I understand when you have a human posed with an object and it looks like it's going to strike an animal. And I was like, clearly they're hunting. You know, so the phone, and this has been shown, like you can drop them anywhere in the world and whoever picks it up when it's icon driven can learn to navigate it. And you're like, that's a fascinating part of, again, the cognitive capability of, of humans to pick up things and move into it. And so it's, that to me is one of those complex technologies that's been an example of meeting the needs of an incredible spectrum of people. So, but not everybody uses their cell phone in the same way. They use it the way they need to. And um, it, I may not use my cell phone to its greatest extent, but I get what I need out of it and I continue to use it and benefit from it. It's still added value. But in the spaceflight domain, um, Brittany, when you mentioned that, now we have some more specialized expectations of what the human needs to do in the paradigm of the vehicle, in the paradigm of the mission. And then you start to think about well, we can do certain things with the human with respect to selection. Um, that is changing with respect to commercial spaceflight and, and trying to fly a much broader population of people, but you'll still have to manage your expectations of who can fly the vehicle versus who can be a passenger. Um, and those jobs will be different. And you have to understand if you're designing for someone who's expected to fly the vehicle, you still want to go back and enable them to fly under various circumstances, particularly stressful or you know, conditions where there's a lot of duress and they're, they're being pulled on physiologically and cognitively many different ways, but they can still get the job done. That, And I think Cynthia mentioned human error. You don't want, and this is why in spaceflight, it kind of puts a very critical point on this concept of human-centered design was you have to understand how this human is changing over time due to the stressors of spaceflight and then due to the stressors of a particular scenario that says, could they still operate the vehicle given that there might be low oxygen, given that there is microgravity, given that, you know, you know, <laughs> there's a decompression somewhere in the vehicle and someone's working, you know, a critical anomaly, why you got to still make this craft, this vehicle do what it's supposed to do. And it says whatever they're looking at and however they're interacting with that device should make sure that they are enabled to do that job versus put in a position to fail. And this is when that triangulation, um, not so much in the biz the traditional business context of creating marketability and profit, but that all of the systems that are pulling on the human need to compromise. Not everything is going to or should require the human's attention simultaneously. And so we've done a lot of work of trying to break down when things become more critical and you narrow in on how the human needs to be supported versus when you can back out and say, this is kind of generalizable, again, going back to the phone, like almost anybody could operate this under any circumstances. We're going to make it so simple. But now it goes back on the developer that says, if you're going to make it that simple, you've probably got a much larger, larger body of work to do because the the forward-facing simplicity of it required a, a lot of research and design in design iteration to ensure that such a broad population can use it. Um, so there's a lot of dichotomies going on. And I think what's interesting, I, I was thinking about, you know, some of our comments earlier. And, and while our divisions are very complementary and I think the approach is very holistic, there's like a duality to it. 
because I represent the side of a constantly moving target. The human's not going to, you know, figuratively stand still for you. That target may be altered over time. And in the healthcare domain, um, just to get it on the table, it's really that someone who is uh, requiring medical care, their disease process is evolving. They are changing as a human as this disease process evolves. So what they could have done you know, under early stages of the disease, and you could take something that's like a cognitive impairment, such as dementia and Alzheimer's, they will not be able to do later. So in terms of continuity of care, when you're designing things, understanding, going back to evidence base, who is your patient population and will they be changing over time? And can your design accommodate a moving target? Um, and, and, you know, the, the answer is it depends. There's, there's more, definitely more than one right answer for any given scenario, but we like to at least um, use our critical thinking skills across all the domains that we've discussed and say for a client or, or you know, someone who is trying, struggling with how they're approaching the design, it's let's talk about these things and let's walk through the scenarios and then make some, you know, help people make decisions about what they're targeting and where they think they really need to go with their solution. Yeah, that brings up an interesting point too. It's a it's a parallel concern from the from the business side that you know sort sort of shares the same outcome. But when <clears throat> business priorities change and or new new things are introduced or new ways of doing doing things within an existing design, such as changing operations, you know any any change is not equal. It has an impact, and so understanding what happens when you introduce something and similarly take something away, what you're introducing that you didn't account for before is is a really real concern in terms of you know understanding what your potential outcomes could be that that could be negative and not so positive. And so there's been quite a few examples of this out. Uh, lately, and I think everybody has some some level of working knowledge with like the Max Eights to talk about a different industry, the airline industry. You know, it was a, a software change that they integrated, and because the from the business side of the house, the thought was that it was a, a minor change that no additional testing was needed because they understood the vehicle and other components. But what they didn't understand is that. Um, the way the the plane operated or responded to certain commanding was exactly opposite from what was trained on all the all the other different air um, models of airplanes. And so the the pilots had been trained one way to, for that system anomaly, and they weren't trained to respond the way the Max Eights needed them to respond, given the, the the change in software and design. And so that that created, you know, a pretty catastrophic, you know, set of circumstances and loss of life. And so again, you know, what seems minor isn't always so minor in terms of change. And and I think, you know, I think that's important not only from a human health perspective, but also what we we think is simple from a business perspective when we don't understand the implications on the other side for the end user. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really good point, and um, you know, a, applying human centered design and giving that voice, you know, a seat at the table, if you will, for those conversations of, um, you know, schedule and cost and things like that, and understanding what the 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 outcomes could be if these considerations aren't given, you know, it is really important going back to the business model too, and not just letting, um, you know, the cost and schedule or you know, things of that nature drive the design and drive the implementation and, and, and things like that. 
Yeah, and we've really tried to be rigorous in terms of our approach, you know, is going to use tools that give, um, again, uh, transparency to, to the data. Um, and there's tools, one of them that came to mind during this discussion was really about critical factor mapping. You know, in order to understand if you're going to make a change or apply something new, you know, or put, put a, a known technology into a new context, you know, to uh, very uh, objectively lay out all of the implications of how things are going to push and pull on each other so that you don't have those unanticipated effects that you actually work through them. And you, you may have to make a decision about going back and doing more testing, realizing that, again, Cynthia used the word impact. Um, you know, it, it could have been unintended and it could have been unanticipated, but usually in retrospect, you know, and everybody's a Monday morning quarterback, it should have been. Had you taken the time um, you could have anticipated, you might've thought the probability was low and that's when you have to go off and do some work to go refine your numbers, which may mean more data acquisition, or you could be satisfied with, you know, the data you have you're working with, but you should understand the uncertainty around it. Um, so the, those tools, uh, you know, get data on the table to make decisions. I think both human factors, uh, drop the engineering for a second, but human factors and health and uh, performance Often, I think we're challenged by the fact that um, the data may not be as crisp as what the engineering community could come forward with. We're talking with, you know, Six Sigma. It was like you got three decimal places and they're, you know, when you test a piece of hardware to failure, you know, you would come in with really tight, almost non-existent variability. You do human testing. Again, going back to my comment about the continuum, the, the performance and health status, huge amount of variability. Now, we can narrow the variability down by constraining the population, but you don't necessarily want to do that. That's, that's not an effective tool. If you're going to open up the population, now you're going to have to deal with the fact like there's a lot of variability driven by the user. And that's not wrong. That's something you just have to deal with, and you have to collect data to characterize it. And sometimes, you know, we start out having to use some qualitative measures, but you can, you know, use... Um, transformative tools to quantify them so they can go into this risk matrix comparison and you can kind of understand how that's really going to play out when you're doing, you know, design against schedule, against cost, against technical. Um, and I think that's very helpful to any of our customers. Like it, it gives you more situational awareness and gives, I think, decision-making power to you. Um, and it makes it, it reduces the probability of having an unintended con consequence because I think we've started to really communicate that the fundamental issue of, of calling things, you know, the accident being driven by human error should stop you in your tracks. And you're like, why was the human put in a situation to make a mistake? I call it, you know, like the forced error that, you know, I think we've started saying like it, it should be the first symptom. It, well, not, not the first, but um, it, it is a symptom of, of maybe inadequate design. And then you have to go back and scrutinize, you know, where the gap, why the gap happened and why didn't we anticipate it? Right. Yeah. And, you know, just for the audience who's, who's following along, you know, all of the things that we've been discussing from human-centered design as a philosophy and approach to HFE, human factors, applied health as, as the methodologies, the, the tools and the science that support it, which, which you didn't hear, which is also a common misnomer is that, you know, this type of design, human-centered design, is about making people happy. 
that's the end outcome of successfully using these these philosophies and methodologies and that's not the first order of business as you've you've probably picked up on us that's it's a lot more heavily um, data driven and science driven from the perspective of we're trying to make sure that these elements are not only usable but they're safe and that there's a foundation for understanding what's going to happen when you start putting all of these these pieces of the puzzle together, especially in complex environments. And so it's a very complicated um, expertise or you know arena. Yeah, definitely multidisciplinary. Um you know, which I've gained a greater appreciation for over the years um, that, you know, I rely on expertise in many areas to inform how I critically think about the data coming out, you know, and on the health and performance side, you know, it can run from neuroscience to cardiologist to, um, you know, immunologist, you know, it targeting any area that, you know, one of the human subsystems that I think could be affecting the status of a human at any one time to kind of get a better handle on predicting, you know, how they're going to function, um, whether it be intellectually or physically. But the same goes for the other aspects of, you know, behavior, um, what's driving it, what, what are all the environmental conditions that would make someone, their function get, you know, not be compromised or be, you know, significantly deteriorated. Um, and coming from an occupational health background, it was our first order of business is to literally engineer it out. You know, if you cannot expose or not induce the problem, that, that should weigh very heavily into the approach and design. And if you can't engineer it out, what are your other alternatives? How do you continue to protect the person from the concept of their health and performance, meaning that they can do the action. They can benefit from the, you know, the value that's being brought forward by the technology or procedure. Um, and ultimately in the end, if you can't accomplish those things, you're going to have some consequences on the, the other end you should be able to anticipate and then, you know, have to treat the person for, or for mitigate. So those are just philosophically like things I apply when we're, we're working with a client and trying to understand what they're trying to achieve. They don't all they, they're not all going to look the same way for sure. And the, the language is going to be slightly different, but that's kind of how I, you know, we break it down uh, at least on the applied health and performance side to get our arms around, like, you know, how do we help you get where you want to go? Um, and where do we think there are significant gaps that create large, large potential for risk? And then how do you burn down those risks? What's the plan? Yeah, and I think that's that's really where the significance of shared perspective and methodology lie is just how these, you know, the prioritization of dealing with them from a design it out perspective, you know, understanding, characterizing the risk effectively and, you know, thorough testing to make sure you've you've protected for it. And then, you know, if you can't, you know, what are your other options? I think that's, you know, symbiotic across the board. So that's us in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, we've we've touched on human factors, engineering and applied health and performances and all the different capabilities and applications there in order to achieve human centered design. You know, and with our portfolio of clients, we've really been able to see the benefits and the outcomes and the successes of human centered design. And, you know, that's been really rewarding. Um, And we hope to continue to expand the practice of human centered design and, you know, ultimately helping businesses build better, better businesses by design. So thank you for listening to the Human Odyssey podcast. Check out our social media platforms for more human-centered content. 
The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic smart.